What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. She's my mom! She's a zombie. Don't say that! Move aside. I'm going to count to three. One, two, three! Don't find that gun on my mom! Someone come! Not many of us have had to off our mums because they turned into zombies. None of us, actually. But Film Spotting listeners may be able to relate to such a tough choice. Film Spotting Madness, best of the 2000s, continues this week with our Sweet 16 matchups. Will Shaun of the Dead be among the living? Also on the show, our review of Transit, the acclaimed new film from Germany's Christian Petzold, and the third film in our John Cassavetes marathon, 1976's The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. It's all ahead. Don't point that gun at Mulholland Drive. On Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting, the show that every March turns into a running man style fight to the death. Maybe we should update that reference to Hunger Games style fight to the death. I grew up with Schwarzenegger. I'm sticking with Schwarzenegger, <laughs> Josh. We're talking about film spotting madness, of course, our annual 64 film March Madness style tourney. This year, it's the best of the 2000s. And after two weeks of voting, we are down to the final 16 films, the so-called Sweet 16. There were a couple of surprises in round two, and there's at least one absolutely brutal matchup we're going to get to here in a little bit all that madness again later in the show plus our four film deep dive into the work of director john cassavetes continues with 1976's and maybe 1978's the killing of a chinese bookie but first after his acclaimed phoenix director christian petzold returns to world war ii or does he with transit Foxland guns common hose Cats and mows come in the house, man and frau come in the house. Sie sind merkwürdig. Eine Frage noch. Was war das Letzte, das Sie geschrieben haben? A quick note as we get into our review here, Adam. The basic plot of transit is something of a twist. So if listeners want to go in completely blind, they might want to save our review until after they've seen it. There's really no way to talk around the central premise. And in fact, it's pretty much revealed right at the film's start. As transit opens, we seem to be in contemporary Paris, at least judging by the clothing and the cars that we see. But everyone is talking as if the city's fallen under Nazi occupation. There are dire warnings of the city being closed off, of citizens being abducted if they can't show the proper documents, and of homes being raided. Georg, played by Franz Rogowski, plans to flee as soon as he's delivered two letters to a writer, as a favor for a friend. But when he discovers the writer has committed suicide, he quickly grabs whatever documents and manuscripts are in the dead man's apartment and stows away on a train to Marseille, where he hopes to find a way out of the country. We eventually figure out the game that writer-director Christian Petzold is playing. He's taken Anna Segher's 1944 novel, a Casablanca-ish yarn about political refugees seeking to flee fascist forces, and set it in contemporary France. I'm sure we'll get into the implications of that, artistic and political ones both. But first, I want to get your initial reaction to this premise, Adam. When did you clue in to what was going on? And what did you make of it? <laughs> I don't remember the exact point I clued in, but that was certainly 
the running question in my mind throughout this film. When is there going to be some kind of reveal? And you're absolutely right that there are mostly modern elements. You recognize modern day Paris and the vehicles and the clothing, I would say, for the most part. But then there's stuff like old fashioned radios and lots of typewriters and there don't seem to be any smartphones or computers. And everyone's talking about transit papers in a way that is not modern at all. And you reference Casablanca. Certainly that element is here, right? The French and the Germans and the black market activity and all that paperwork. And we do have a love triangle at one point that's introduced and a male character who has grander visions for the world and potentially making it a better place. And we may get into this a little bit too. Rick's in Casablanca was always a sort of purgatory, which this version of Marseille may be as well. And we see everyone just stuck here trying to get out. There's elements of Hitchcock, just like Phoenix, that we could get into, and maybe we won't. And then even at one point, there's a random Dawn of the Dead reference. Georg Mm -hmm. actually says something about this film where people are stuck in a shopping mall and there's zombies or something. And you're going, okay, so that happened in 1978. What year is this? And that really was a question I was wrestling with during the film and after the film. When you have a movie like this... That I don't know if this makes any sense, probably a contradiction in terms, but it's kind of a subtle enigma. Absolutely an enigma feels like a puzzle, but at the same time, isn't a high concept in the same way something like Memento is. Not that there's any connection really to these two films, though there might be, but something like that that you can sort of sum up in one or two sentences what that hook is. You can't do that really with this film. And so you've got a movie that feels like it is building, at least it did to me, feels like it's building to a reveal more than just a conclusion or some kind of resolution to the story. There is a riddle aspect to the movie, the setting and everything you describe, but also all the references to storytelling. You have a writer here who is a factor in the story and our main character who is impersonating that writer and who responds to the writer's work and characters in precisely the way we as viewers regard him and the other characters. And then we've got that kind of story within the story aspect where he actually at one point recites the author's work about a man who is looking to register to enter hell and then discovers that he's already there. So even within that story, there's a Russian doll element where that character believes one narrative and his perception turns out to be false. Throw in the voiceover that comes into this movie, the narration and the fact that most often what the narrator describes as if he is a first person witness to these events, what we see play out on screen actually doesn't usually match exactly what he just told us. So all of those elements are at play here. And for me, there was a certain expectation that it was going to become as clear as the cinematography here with those rich, deep focus shots of the streets and the seaside of Marseille. Even the hotel rooms have deep focus, no matter how cramped they may be. So as a viewer, what do you do? How do you react when then? I think it's fair to say there isn't quite that payoff. When the movie turns out to not be an immaculately crafted brain teaser, but something else. Is there enough to latch onto to overcome maybe a little bit of a feeling of disappointment? And maybe I should be ashamed a little bit as a viewer for wanting that kind of very simple, basic pleasure out of this film. But when it wasn't there, felt a little bit unsatisfied as I reflect on the film. Absolutely enough layers for me to be excited to discuss it and to recommend it. Well, it's absolutely reasonable to want that sort of resolution. I mean, I think that instinct is natural. And I think the storytelling element, which we should return to, kind of 
feeds that. Mm-hmm. You know, you're being toyed with yes. a little bit yes. here. Um, I absolutely love the fact that we didn't get a reveal or a resolution, even though I had that same impulse mm-hmm. as you did. I wanted it. I was looking for it. I loved the state of bewilderment this movie left me in. It's similar to you, I went in knowing very little about it, so had no sense that the setting was being played with this yep. way. Had no uh, idea. And that sense of dislocation I think is exactly what the film is going about. I think that's what lends it its political power, which is one of the more valuable elements to me, is that it's taking this idea of refugees we know from history and the associations we have and the the sense of horror and um, this yearning for justice in that situation that we've already gone through in World War II mm-hmm. and moved it into the present age and forced us to ask, okay, who are people experiencing this today in the same way. Not exactly the same. It's not a one-to-one comparison, obviously. But there are a couple of things that are happening right now. Racially motivated raids, demands for documentation, harsh deportation. In a sense, this is stuff that we're seeing, you know, maybe in Europe. I'm not as close to that situation. But certainly we're seeing elements of this in the United States with all this talk about refugee status and all the discussion over what to do with immigrants and refugees coming in on the Mexico-U.S. border. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of implications here that by merging, by blurring the past and present, um, gives the film really potent political power by yes. leaving us unsettled and asking those questions. That's probably one of the things that I liked most about it. Now, if we want to talk about reservations, I think you kind of touched on one that I did have is that I almost appreciated everything on this intellectual theoretical level Um, and the games that are being played here, which are very clever, well-constructed, and I did appreciate in a way for me, they got in the way of the human element in this story. And specifically, you mentioned that love triangle. Well, one peg in that, we have Georg and then we have Marie, played by Paula Beer, who he meets in Marseille. She is the wife of the writer who committed suicide. So he's posing as her husband, and this basically presents this moral quandary for him. Should he tell her about the husband and turn over the documents? Does he keep her in the dark and use the papers still to his own advantage? That's how he's trying to get out of the country. Or does he indulge this sudden infatuation he has with her and try to have it both ways? Now, she's also involved at this time in a relationship with a doctor. So there's the love triangle, played by Godhard Geisa. And I have to say that interpersonal element. I mean, it's not fair to compare it to Casablanca, but if it's if this is as naughty as Casablanca politically um, and in terms of storytelling, it certainly doesn't have the emotional impact that Casablanca has because these characters registered to me more as pawns isn't the right word, but figures mm-hmm. in this elaborate chess game that Petzold has devised. I didn't quite get that, especially when Georg really falls for Maria. Their connection felt a little rushed. I didn't quite know if we were supposed to feel that this was really authentic, something passionate, if it was mercenary. And so it left me a little bit wanting on that end. It might have something to do with the performances too. I mean, Rogowski plays this so close to the vest. You which mean the makes, German Joaquin Phoenix? <laughs> yeah, he really does I mean, look he really like is. Uh, it, it makes sense for the character. You understand why he's yes. doing that, but really hard to access someone like that. And then Beer is, she's almost treated like this apparition. She floats around Marseille and – I think that's fair. Yeah, That's, again, intentional, but it makes it hard for me to hook into that basic human emotion that's also a part of this story. Sure. I mean, 
we're always seeing her from the point of view of someone else. And so I yes. think that keeps us at a distance. And I think in general, there is an allegorical element to this film introduced early enough that you can buy into that and be forgiving of it. Or maybe it is something that holds you away. I do like some of those human touches, though, we get in the film. I like, for example the way Petzold explores that relationship with the young boy in the movie and mm -hmm. the interactions that Georg has with him. Even that scene where he looks out the window and sees him there waiting and the boy knows what he's going into this building to do. And despite having this chocolate Sunday there, he doesn't eat it. And that kind of image of that melting Sunday in the sun with the depressed boy is one that really does stick with me as I think about this movie. Yeah, he's afraid Georg is going yes. to leave. That's why he's in this building to get more papers. Yeah. And so that's and in a short yeah, amount of time has made a connection. A connection for sure. I think you're right. It's interesting as you say that almost those minor, very minor supporting right. characters registered more strongly for me as well. There's a woman he meets at some of these embassies that he has to go to and stand in right. line. She's in a similar situation mm -hmm. and she's been abandoned. And, and it strikes me thinking back like that was I feel more of a connection to her yeah. and that boy almost Probably. than some of the main characters. No, I, again, I do think that's fair, though. I think that main relationship with Marie for me felt like it was more about poetry than plot. There was always something oddly ambiguous and figurative about it. It was as much of a conundrum, their feelings for each other and whatever that connection they have or don't have as the time and circumstances they were experiencing. So I guess I bought it maybe a little bit more than you did. I haven't seen Barbara. Have you seen Barbara, the first film no. that I think, from what I understand, makes up kind of a trilogy along with Phoenix here from Petzold? And I do see the connections undoubtedly to Phoenix, which we talked about a little bit on the show. Very good movie from a few years ago. And it did occur to me, as I think back on Phoenix, isn't in some ways that movie an exploration of the same central question that transit poses. And we actually have it verbalized twice. It comes up in the movie and it's first said by sort of a random bureaucrat at one of these embassies and then later by Marie herself. And I think as I reflect on it, the implication is maybe Marie is the one who actually said it initially in both cases. Maybe that line by the other guy was actually stolen from her, but she says, who is the first to forget he who is left or she who left him. And it is an interesting conundrum. If you think of any scenario in life, in your own life and other people's lives where someone is left behind, who forgets first? How do you deal with the pain of that? Who moves on first? And actually, I think the, the Nina Haas character in Phoenix in some way, it's just the opposite. She's the one who's left, you could argue, by the husband. And she's now in her own way trying to answer that question. I think similarly, that movie, Phoenix, very much about this kind of national identity of Germany and how they have or haven't been able to move on from their collective guilt from the Holocaust. And where Phoenix was a movie that was tethered to this very specific part of German history and this time, World War II, and that space it occupies in our collective consciousness Transit isn't untethered from history so much as it's unburdened, transforming a Holocaust story into a more universal one of loneliness and longing. That is how I see this film. And when I say unburdened, I don't mean that necessarily it throws off completely the weight of history, but it isn't burdened by the constraints of history, by the facts, by the people and the places and everything that we might expect from a film like this. Yeah, it definitely carries the weight of history. That's one of the things I admire most about it. And that question you mentioned, you know, who moves on, the one who, who left or was left, 
what's interesting is that's something you can ask in everyday relationships that dissolve. Yes. But in both films, Phoenix and now Transit, that question is being asked of people mm-hmm. who history has yes. come down and forced them to be in those situations. Right. Um, and so there's so much loaded burden and it makes the moral – it makes it a moral quandary really that these characters are in is what responsibility do I owe given what has happened to the other person, given what has happened to me, given to the current realities we face not only in our relationship but in in the political world we're now in where everything has irrevocably changed You know, in the course of a year or in the course of this film. You know, it's a couple of days or a week or something like that where this advancing force, this fascist force is moving in on France. So yeah, definitely so many interesting things in common with Phoenix. I think I had Phoenix in my mind, Nina Haas's performance in particular in my mind, when I was maybe holding a high standard of the mm. performances here, because hers was one of the, the best performances of that year, the way she yes. was able she to dominates balance. that film. She yeah. dominates the film. She was commanding and also achingly vulnerable. So, so maybe not fair to hold that up as the standard for this film as well. Uh, another thing I really liked, you mentioned the deep focus that was employed. There's a visual motive motif that Petzold returns to that's very effective. And it's the way he's always emphasizing, not always, but in important moments, emphasizing the way objects leave the frame. This could be people, you know, just ducking down an alley, trying to escape the police, or when someone disappears down a subway entrance, Mm -hmm. there's a way of framing it or letting that moment linger, letting their disappearance linger a little bit longer than we're used to. And one that we get twice, I think, is a ship leaving port Mm -hmm. from long shot. And the camera just sits there and the ship slowly exits the right of the frame. Uh, Again, making us sit in that moment of departure. And it emphasizes exactly that question again about leaving. Um, And another recurring visual motif that's just really striking and effective is that overhead shot of these silvery blue train tracks as they race by below. That's, uh, you know, we first see it when Georg has hopped a train Mm -hmm. to escape Paris and it keeps coming back to him. That's kind of the moment he decides to take on this new identity. And so there are crucial moments in the film later where he's making, again, a moral choice. Choice, and a lot of time we'll flash back to those train tracks sure. passing by just, you know, it just captures sort of the blur that this guy is in having to make these decisions in the moment. Yeah, there is that blur, but it's not an accident that the movie is called Transit. But the most travel or movement really we witness in this movie is a train ride early in the film. Yes, we do see some ships departing, but the only real moment of transit actually in the film is when we see him escaping from Paris to Marseille. And it's notable that Every time he looks out that window and he looks at the countryside, it's so stunningly beautiful, which, of course, belies the horror that we know is spreading. And it also subverts and plays with our expectations a little bit, because once we start queuing in a little bit to the puzzle of this film, you almost expect it to be more war torn. You almost expect it to be a kind of dystopia. And that's not what we get at all with the film. I thought a lot, actually, of Franz Kafka, some of my favorite books, reading back in high school and college, the futility and the sort of tediousness of daily life, the despair of the metamorphosis of the trial, the lines we see that seem like they have the exact same people every time he goes in, the same faces in the same places. And even Orwell, you can't help but think a little bit of 1984, where you've got this future dystopia that nevertheless 
feels mostly like the present day. And the the countries here in this movie, they match. They're the names. They're U.S. and Mexico and France and Germany. But the geopolitics don't really align with the present day, nor do they totally align with the past either. So it is this amazing anachronistic Hybrid, And actually, our friend Scott Tobias, who's a big fan of this film, in his review, he said, Petzold's made a film about refugees premised on society's never-ending potential for fascism. He's exactly right, as usual. But you can also argue that fascism in this movie is a bit of a red herring, even though it suffuses everything we see. But I think that all leads back to the question that the movie poses, though, in the context of a romance or a dissolving romance. And what you articulated just a few moments ago, Josh, the movie does force us to ask the question as viewers and as participants in history, who is the first to forget the aggrieved or the aggressor? Who actually gets to move on, the victim or the tormentor or however you want to phrase it? I do think that one of the endeavors of this film is for Petzold to not let us forget and see some of those faces like the refugees who are in the room when he returns mm, and finds that yeah. that the people that he was there to see, the people that history would typically forget, they're gone and now they're gone forever and we will never see them again. And now a new batch of people has yeah. moved into that place. And who's going to remember them? A group who looks, the whole depiction of them looks very much like the refugees we see on the news and yeah. in headlines today. Again, blending that past and present. I also think there's, you know, it's an ironic touch. And from what I understand, this is drawn from the original novel that the place where are they trying to get to, where are most people trying to get to when they're fleeing France? They're trying to go to Mexico. Yeah. And this just speaks to the the mixing of our current reality mm-hmm. and the place Mexico holds in this question of immigration and refugees is, you know, the, it's just ironic that that's where people are trying to flee in the film. So, yeah, a lot of, lot of good sort of um, mind-twisting stuff going on in transit. Absolutely. Transit is currently playing in limited release. Obviously, highly recommended by us. Highly recommended that you seek it out if you can find a theater near you that is playing it. Go to Music Box boxfilms.com to see that full list of theaters where transit is playing, including additional dates in the coming weeks. It is going to continue to roll out. If you do see it or have seen it already and agree or disagree with our takes, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Next up, we have round two results of Film Spotting Madness. Will In Bruges continue its undeserved run in the tournament? Can you tell Ouch. I'm still bitter about that Ratatouille loss? Stay with us. Got me standing in the rain. Gotta get my hair pressed again. I would do it for you all, my friend. Ready, baby? Will you be my man? Wanna put you on a plane? Fly you out to wherever I am. Kept you on the low. I was ashamed. Now I'm crazy about to attach your name. Zora, put your shoes on. 
If you want to get crazy, we can get crazy. That's from the trailer for Jordan Peele's Us, which opens wide next weekend. Of course, Peele's highly anticipated follow-up to 2017's Get Out. It stars Lupita Nyong'o, Winston Duke, and Elizabeth Moss. Now, I'm okay with hearing that little snippet from the trailer, but I think we're in the same position here, Josh. I've been avoiding as much as possible any of the teasers that have been out there and any of the discussion about it as well, which made it incredibly frustrating to be on Twitter this past week oh, as it played, I, I think, in Austin at South Must by Southwest. Must have been where it was, yeah. Film Twitter was all abuzz, and I had to basically block out everyone. Not block, but I had to block out yeah. everyone because I just, just put Twitter don't want to know a thing. No, I'm with you. I think I did see the first teaser. I figured yeah. it'd be short I enough that most I could of it survive anyway. that. But <laughs> I'm going to come back and finish it later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. These uh, later ones, it, it's been the case of sitting in the theater for something else. It comes on and just closing my eyes and putting my fingers in my ears. I can imagine that, actually. On next week's show, we will review us, and the madness, of course, will continue. We will get to the eight best films of the 2000s, according to Film Spotting listeners, plus the final movie in our John Cassavetes marathon, 1977's opening night. We'll have more Cassavetes talk in a moment, but we will remind you that you can go to filmspotting.net slash marathons to catch up on the Cassavetes marathon, maybe catch up on previous marathons or get a glimpse of our future marathons. We are rarely ahead of the game, but it does seem that we might just have our next two planned out. When we settled on Cassavetes, we put that up to a listener vote. One of the contenders was Marlena Dietrich. And with Criterion releasing a little while back a set of Joseph von Sternberg and Marlena Dietrich's collaborations, we really do think that's a marathon we have to tackle between the three of us, Sam, our producer included. So we're excited about that. But we hinted at it when we touched on the passing of this director recently. And I swear, I have always said Stanley Donnan. That's how I've always said the name, but it's D-O-N-E-N. So can we have an on-air production meeting and settle on the name? Is it Donan? I think we're going to have to investigate I don't know how many times I've said it out loud in my life, so we're gonna, I don't really have a track record to go we'll back We'll come back on. to it. We'll come back we'll to come it. We'll come back to it. But that filmmaker who made Funny Face, who made On the Town, who made Charade, of course, also co-directed Singing in the Rain, we are going to do a marathon of his work. And we figure, why not, with the timeliness, with his passing, recognizing that he's a blind spot, really, for both of us, we should check out his films first. So I think that's our plan. We're going to yeah. do Donnan, or Donan, and then we're going to do... Von Sternberg and Dietrich. So we feel pretty good about On the Town and Funny Face and Shrade, those three that I mentioned. And then there are a lot of options for whatever the fourth film could be to round out that marathon, including Two for the Road. I can't wait to hear from listeners with their recommendations. Yeah, and Two for the Road with uh, Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney. With Finney's passing, you know, that seems fitting as well. So maybe that has the lead, but we'll see. I'm really excited about this one. We hope to do it, I think, Mid-April, right? Yeah, we'll that's jump the right plan. in. I think we want to get it done, and we're going to try to commit to this plan. We're going to try to get it done before summer. Summer is crazy with a lot of big movies coming out and also our schedules and some family travel and a lot going on. And then, of course, right out of summer into fall yeah. and the holiday season. And that's when it gets really nuts and the screeners start piling up and we're thinking about our top 10 of the year show. So this kind of movie doldrums time from January after the wrap party up until – really April, May, Mm -hmm. is our window to fit in a couple marathons. And we're going to try to stick to that schedule and always get in at least a couple here every year. So again, more information about our marathons, filmspotting.net slash marathons. 
I want to share a quick note of thanks to a longtime film spotting listener, Matthew Peel. Matt is a professor at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, super smart guy, particularly because he invited me out recently to talk to the folks at Augustana about my book, Movies Are Prayers, and got to hang out with him. He was my host, incredibly friendly, also an NBA nerd, so we might have talked Hmm. Celtics fan, huge Celtics fan. I don't hold that against him. We might have talked as much NBA as we did movies, but had a great night meeting some of the honor students there, working through Toy Story as a prayer of confession, which, how's this for programming, Adam? Not that matter. I planned this in advance. We didn't realize no. it until like uh, 10 days ahead of time. Ash Wednesday is when I was there. So perfect to talk about I'm Toy Story. I assumed. You assumed I'd be it in church? It was all planned out. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, we just happened to have that nice connection. So it was a good time there. Thank you very much, Matt, again, for being a host. If anyone, hey, if any other listeners, you know, if you're at a university or a college and want me to come out, um, just email me, josh at larsononfilm.com, and I'd love to do that. Yeah, just make sure the check clears. And Josh is your guy. He'll be ready. <laughs> What's a Josh Larson writer look like on oh, one man. of these visits? I mean, what's what's well, in the deal? In the green room, I've certain tried kind of m Is it like it. Spinal Tap with the meats and cheeses and they got to fit a certain way? Or I'm what? proud of myself, Adam. I've gotten it down to 13 pages. Okay. So, yeah. I think that's reasonable. High maintenance. If you want to have high maintenance, Josh, come visit you. Absolutely. As he said, what's the email address again? Josh at LarsonOnFilm.com. There you go. Over at our website, filmspotting.net, is also where our local Chicago land listeners can enter to win free movie passes, either advanced screening passes or sometimes run of engagement passes. So anytime during the movie's run here on a Chicago screen and starting March 25th, we will have run of engagement passes to Kim Gwen's The Hummingbird Project. It stars Jesse Eisenberg, Alexander Skarsgård, and Salma Hayek. It's about a pair of high-frequency traders who go up against their old boss in an effort to make millions in a fiber optic cable deal. Gwen's the director of 2012's War Witch. So if that movie intrigues you, please do go to filmspotting.net slash events to enter to win those passes. Does it get easier? No. Just in case you were wondering, no. Film Spotting Madness does not get easier. Thank you, Bill Murray. There, of course, with Scarlett Johansson and Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. Translation was part of our closest round two contest. It went up against Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead. We will share all those second round results and give you your sweet 16 matchups in just a moment. But first... For people who might be tuning in for the first time or not aware, Film Spotting Madness is our March Madness style single elimination tournament. And this is our fifth year of it. Done actors, directors, done the Pantheon, a few different variations on this. And we are currently on the best films of the 2000s. Next year will be the best films of the 2010s. Also important to note for those who may be just jumping in now, getting a little late to the contest, but polls go live every Friday at midnight central. So really late Thursday night. And then they close the following Monday at noon. So that gives you about a three-day window to vote. You can also follow us at Film Spotting on Twitter for updates. Here's an extra hint. If you subscribe to the Film Spotting newsletter, you will get a first shot at polls. So that newsletter goes out Mondays at noon, almost gives you a full week to agonize over yep. this stuff. You can sign up for the newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. With that, let's get to those round two results. As we did last week, we will go in order from the biggest blowout to the narrowest margin of victory. We start 
with the number one overall seed, the Coen Brothers, No Country for Old Men, up against our beloved Brick from filmmaker Ryan Johnson. In round one, Brick beat Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream, No Country, took down the inaugural Golden Brick winner, Duncan Jones, Moon. You can always comment when you're voting in Film Spotting Madness. Here's a note from Ian Todd. You guys are one of, if not the reason, I was turned on to Moon and Brick in the first place. Now you are the reasons I am helping to destroy them forever. That's right. I hope you are happy with yourselves. <laughs> it's true. These results matter. Basically, the implication of Film Spotting Madness is, is you're weighing the two candidates, is whichever one you don't pick, it's going in the incinerator. Yeah. Nobody will ever get to see it again. I That's believe, what you have to consider. I believe Sam actually gets a hold of a DVD and burns it for these titles. Yeah, he might. He takes it that seriously. Sam from Indy says, I voted Brick. I know it will lose. I don't care. Screw you, Cones. Just kidding. I love you, Cones. Ugh. I hate this. That That's really the case. Listeners like Sam, hold your enmity for us here at Film Spotting, the monsters who came up with this little game. No Country for Old Men does take down Brick. 86% to 14%. So long, Brick. Next up, Amelie versus There Will Be Blood. In round one, Amelie beat Terrence Malick's The New World. Blood beat Joe Wright's Atonement. We heard from Richard Holland on this one. There Will Be Blood is great, sure. Is it a better film? Sure. Well, up yours, quality. I'm going with the movie I discovered by accident while in Paris and forced everyone I know to see when back in the U.S. Little do my sons know they would definitely had been named Amelie had chromosomes broken slightly <laughs> differently. Well, that, that's a okay. personal I mean, vote there. Yeah, that's a personal vote. No one's going to argue with you there, Richard, but they're not going to agree with you. 79% of the vote going to There Will Be Blood. Okay, how about... Your beloved in Bruges, Martin McDonough's Speaking of in Bruges took down Ratatouille in round one up against Children of Men, which beat Tomas Alfredson's Let the Right One In. Duncan in Rochester Hills, Michigan says, finally caught up with Children of Men. Absolutely no question that it's the better choice here. In Bruges is good. In Bruges is fun. But by the end of Children of Men, I was nearly moved to tears. I may have found a new tournament favorite. Here's Eric Lai. I'm voting for In Bruges only to hear Josh get more and more infuriated as it advances all the way to the finals and is crowned the best <laughs> film of the 2000s. Nothing personal, Josh. Eric, Why couldn't this have happened? Eric, I hope I mispronounced your name. <laughs> I really, really am with Eric and wanted this to play out, but it's not going to happen. Alas. Did you vote for Children of no. Men? Or in well, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I all voted right. for Children of Men, you but didn't in, want my that heart, badly. in my heart, I wanted you, you wanted to, suffer. Me to suffer. Yeah, I did. But In Bruges went down hard, 75% right. of the vote going to Coron. Justice has prevailed. Okay, what about Pixar's Finding Nemo? Which, I mean, it's dead to you already. You already flushed Nemo down the toilet. Twice dead. In round one, somehow it survived. Listeners came to the rescue. Up against Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which beat Gus Van Sant's Elephant in round one. Nemo, a very tough battle against Brokeback Mountain, did emerge victorious. Will it emerge victorious here against the Gondry? Here's Joseph Orlando. If the stakes of film spotty madness are to be taken to their fullest extreme, it's not enough for all these films to be deep-sixed. The true horror would be to lose these films completely, to forget that we ever saw them and keep none of what they gave us. Somehow he's made film spotty madness worse. <laughs> If only there were a film that could fully express how painful that would yeah. be, Joseph says. We see what you're up to, Joseph. We know what you're doing there. Olivier Pasco says, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And unfortunately, Nemo and Dory are going to just keep swimming to the future NIT bracket of film spotting <laughs> madness because Nemo's out. Ooh. Nemo's out. Not 74% even close. going to Eternal Sunshine. Man, I thought it had a full head of steam was going to do something, but. Ooh. No, 
The Coen Brothers. Clear. Will they have two films, Josh, in The Sweet Sixteen? A Serious Man is up against Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight in round one. Serious Man beat Unbreakable. Dark Knight beat The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Ryan Fitzgerald says The Dark Knight is the best superhero film ever made, but it can only be viewed as that, the best superhero film ever made. The Coen Brothers' A Serious Man can be viewed as a criticism of organized religion, a modern retelling of the story of Job and the necessity of faith, an exploration on the meaningless void we call life, or just a black comedy that will have you laughing throughout. In my opinion, it's the Coen's best film, but I'm sure I'll have to consult the mentaculous to try to find the answer as to why The Dark Knight won. Well, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Ryan, because you articulated very nicely why I voted for A Serious Man in this contest, but we were not on the victorious side here, Ryan. Sounds like genre bias to me. No, indeed, The Dark Knight took it with 73% to Serious Man's 27%. Okay, Steven Spielberg, Minority Report, up against Quentin Tarantino in Glorious Bastards. Minority Report narrowly beat Park Chanuk's Old Boy in round one, and Glorious Bastards beat David Cronenberg's A History of Violence. Duncan in Rochester Hills, Michigan, says, I'm torn between my love of several of the scenes from Inglorious Bastards and the overall quality of the other movie. And Bastards comes out on top. Minority Report is an excellent movie, a really underrated sci-fi gem. But the opening 10 minutes of Inglorious Bastards is probably the greatest short movie ever made. Might be right, Duncan. Inglorious Bastards, they are formidable foes. 69% of the vote to Minority Report's 31%. That brings us to one of the toughest matchups, maybe the toughest for me, of round two. One of your most surprising votes to me. Yeah, I somehow went with Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums over Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, the movie that has given me my internet avatar for 20 years, Josh. I adore Almost Famous. I don't really want to think about how I voted against it, but I did. I think you're going to have to give that avatar up. That is the punishment. Oh, no. Your punishment is you got to yeah. find a new one. Yeah, William Miller doesn't exist anymore. No, exactly. Right? Okay, Ron Constitutional Anarchy Harshman, longtime listener, got that Sam Van Hallgren nickname, says, Almost Famous hit me on such a personal level, but Tenenbaums is by far my favorite Anderson film. I think I'll just keep Almost Famous tucked inside my heart with the memory of seeing it for the first time ever and let Royal and his family move on to face the next round. Joshua Heiser says, some people think Almost Famous is a good movie. What this choice presupposes is, oh, I'm supposed to do this in the Owen Wilson voice? Yeah, though that's my voice, but yeah, you're supposed to do it. <gasps> Maybe it isn't. Oh, man. Ooh, that was brutal. That was awful. Wow. Yeah. That was really bad. Well, I'll show you how to do it another time. Off air. Joshua says, I choose Wes, and so did the listeners. The Royal Tenenbaums, wow. 65% of the vote. <laughs> yeah, he's a little bit like a cat You're purring. still doing Mr. Monopoly. No, he's a little bit like a cat. <laughs> I think it was closer, and we can put it to a vote if you want film spotting listeners wow, to decide. My wow is way better. Okay. Well, the rest of it is trash. I can only do enough, the wow. Fair enough. The Incredibles. Going up against The Fellowship of the Ring, Incredibles beat Edward Yang's Yee. What did Yee ever do <laughs> Poor Yee. to anyone? Fellowship of the Ring beat out Fernando Morelos and Katia Lund's City of God. Here's Aaron Teachman in D.C. I get all the arguments for Fellowship of the Ring, especially as an avatar for the groundbreaking scope of the entire endeavor of filming the trilogy. But in this apocalyptic hellscape where only one movie from the 2000s survives, Tolkien's books will continue to exist. So the best parts of this film will not be lost. 
Gandalf will whisper, fly, you fools, no matter what happens here. So I voted for Pixar here and their uh, incredible achievement of telling a superhero story that resonates in everyday life. I think we really needed to hear your fly, you fools as Owen Wilson. Wow. Fly, you fools. (laughs) Okay, that's not better. That's just not better. But the Fellowship of the Ring, foolish or not, they emerge on top 65% of the vote. The Incredibles is out. So Does that surprise you? That's that big of a margin? Maybe it's bigger than I expected, but I thought Fellowship would take it. Maybe people are coalescing around, ooh, we'll find out, Wally. Yeah. We got to get to that. Yeah. We will find right out now we here have. in a moment. We've got another animated film here on the chopping block, potentially. Your beloved Fantastic Mr. Fox. Such a great movie. It's up against Before Sunset. Now in round one, Fox beat four months, three weeks, two days, and Sunset beat Spike Jones's adaptation. Brent in New Brunswick, New Jersey said, this is the crux of my collegiate cinephile experience. Inundated by peers waxing poetic about their darling Wes Anderson as I toil away in the solitude of a Linklater devotion. Many were quick to crown the Grand Budapest Hotel as the standout film of the 2015 Best Picture race, quick to look over the best film of the decade in boyhood. I'm afraid that will repeat itself in only the second round here. That being said, my vote is with before sunset. Don't be afraid, Brent. My faith... In film spotting listeners, I don't know if it ever really wavered, but it certainly has been substantiated before sunset, 63%. Fantastic Mr. Fox is out. I'm keeping my copy. (laughs) What about Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love going up against another animated film, Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away? Gustav Arendahl in Copenhagen says, Paul Thomas Anderson is a wonderful craftsman, but what Hayao Miyazaki does might as well be sorcery. To compare this relatively minor work of PTAs with one of Miyazaki's most renowned films feels almost unfair. Spirited Away is an awe-inspiring work of imagination, craft, and pure wonder. And don't be sad, PTA. Perhaps you'll have a rematch with Spirited Away in the finale. So I love PTA. It's another shocker that I voted against him, but it's further down on my list of favorite PTA films, and I went with Spirited Away, and so did our audience. 61% of the vote, so bye-bye to Punch Drunk Love, but not bye-bye to PTA. There will be blood, of course, still part of the tournament. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, up against David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Mulholland beat Donnie Darko in round one. Crouching Tiger took down Spider-Man 2. We heard from Mike H., who said the impact of both is immeasurable, and the crushing loss of most of the great foreign films in the first round makes me want to give some love to the truly breathtakingly beautiful Crouching Tiger. Really, give it a rewatch if you can. But ultimately, I can't live in a world without Lynch. And Mulholland Drive is grade A fully realized Lynch. There never has been and never will be another. Yeah, considered Lynch's best by many, so maybe not a surprise that it did win this matchup with 61% of the vote. Up next, we have Christopher Nolan's The Prestige versus David Fincher's Zodiac. In round one, Prestige beat Hot Fuzz, while Zodiac beat Kelly Reichert's Wendy and Lucy. Jason Eakin says a Fincher film that many consider his crowning achievement versus Nolan's best film that most people think is his fifth best or something insane like that. I keep trying to figure out why I went with The Prestige, especially because this would knock Fincher out of the tourney. While Nolan has two other huge movies in the running. But if I'm walking into that theater, and these are my choices, I'm going into The Prestige. Jackman's best work, Nolan's most overlooked, I have to stand by it. Matthew M. Thompson says, I hope you were watching carefully, because it's far too early for The Prestige to disappear. But I'm afraid that's happening, and there's not going to be a magic act to revive it. It's out. Zodiac winning 
with 59% of the vote. We got another Nolan film up next here, Memento, which took on In the Mood for Love. Now in round one, Memento beat Michael Haneke's Cachet, while Mood beat the Dardenne's L'Enfant. Marielle Mitchell said, I hate this, but I'm voting memento. The trauma of making this decision will lead to a rare form of memory loss, and I will spend the remainder of my days seeking justice for one of Wong's many masterpieces, The Unforgettable in the Mood for Love. This is hard. Jacob Eswall says, no, no, I will not have what is probably my favorite film of all time lose to the guy who directed the Batman whiskey voice. (laughs) If in the mood is gone... Throw me in the incinerator with it. Now, Jacob. Oh, Jacob. Jacob. No. Let's that's, not take it that seriously. That's a bold statement. And I'm afraid we have some sad news for you because Memento has taken down Wong Kar In the Mood for Love with 57% of the vote. We all love you, Jacob. Stick around. Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth went up against Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 1. Here's Neil Mitchell. This is hellishly tough. Kill Bill Volume 1 is an adrenaline rush of style, humor, glorious action, martial arts, and that titanic central performance from Uma Thurman. I adore it. Pan's Labyrinth is Guillermo's masterwork. Terrifying, moving, deep, beautiful, pretty much perfect. It wins. So we haven't really had any upsets up to this point, and it's hard to call this one an upset because I think we had Kill Bill as the 16 seed and we had Pan's Labyrinth as the 17 seed. And clearly we could have swapped those out or moved either of them up about seven picks and they still would have been right at home. Nevertheless, I really thought the Tarantino love would carry Kill Bill on to at least the Sweet 16. Yeah, It's not happening. Del Toro wins. Pan's Labyrinth, 57%. I'm happy, but honestly shocked. Yeah. And I think my prediction bracket might be ruined based on this. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that in a moment. Our final two contests of the second round, The Departed, up against Pixar's Wally. Will Ooh. a Pixar film move on? In round one, The Departed beat Itumama Tambien. Wally beat Pedro Almodovar's Talk to Her. Mitka Alperovitz wrote in, this one is ridiculous. One film is about the effects of obsession in the face of insurmountable odds and trying to define your place in a world split in two. The other is one of the most pointless remakes ever. Ouch. Falling below the original in every aspect, adding only a haze code ending in 2006. Wow. Mika, no love for the departed. You're banned. You're banned from the show. <laughs> Joe from London. This was so close that by the time I'd read the comments, I'd forgotten who I voted for. I think it was The Departed, but now kind of wish it was Wally. So a fairly close one here. But Wally moves on. Ah. He moves on 54% to only 46%. Pixar for still represented. Yep. And our last matchup and our closest matchup indeed was Lost in Translation versus Shaun of the Dead. In round one, Translation beat Claire Denise Beau Travail. Shaun of the Dead beat out The Hurt Locker. Rory Dunn says, no chance I can just go to the pub and wait for this whole thing to blow over. No, it's a good I thought. must decide. This is easily the hardest choice yet. Both films have a place in my heart like few films do. I stared at the pole, battling with myself for about 15 minutes. In the end, the idea of losing Shaun of the Dead was too much. You monsters, you monsters. Yeah, we need to hear that at least once every round or it isn't film spotting madness. So we're monsters and Rory's going to be especially disappointed because Shaun of the Dead is out. Out with 49% of the vote. Yep. Translation got 51. Tight. Yes. Not single digit votes like we had a few cases of in round one, but by far our closest of round two. And I totally get it. An incredibly tough choice for me as well. But let's get to the real madness because there's one coming up at the end of this, Josh, that makes me think that the people who came up with this seating 
and created this whole bracket. Mm-hmm. I'm now detaching myself from that because <laughs> it's too, because too late. They should be fired forever. Maybe there's a listener out there, whoever's winning the bracket, and Mike Merrigan, the founding father, they should just get together and they can do the seating because Sam and I should be fired. I can't We're wait not to even hear there this. Yet. We're not even there yet, but we should be fired. And before we get to those Sweet 16 matchups, we will note we've got two foreign language films remaining. We've got two animated films. We've got one film directed by a woman and only one director who has two films in the Sweet 16, as you heard, and he is Christopher Nolan. Okay, matchup number one, Josh. No okay. Country for Old Men. You haven't looked at these. This is just your gut yep, reaction. Right. All right, give no it to Country me. for Old Men. Yes. Versus Pan's Labyrinth. Ouch. Yeah. Oh, Okay. Um, I mean, part of me wants to, part of me is starting to resent the way No Country has just been tromping through all of this. Yeah. The Coen brothers have other films that I like almost as much. Um, don't. Del Toro. Don't take it out on the Coen do, brothers. Do I like. They made such a good film. Uh, do I like any of Del Toro's films better than Pan's Labyrinth? Probably not. By a fair amount. Yes. So I'm going to stick with Pan's Labyrinth. Wow. You see how I okay. got there? See how yeah, I, got there? I do. I mean, it's suspect, but sure. <laughs> I'm going with, I'm sorry, it's boring, Josh. I'm going with No Country for Old Men. Boring. The second matchup. This one should be easier for you. Okay. The Royal Tenenbaums. Yes. Miyazaki, Spirited Away. Yeah, which I've already voted against. You have. I feel terrible about. It's it's strange. I'm on the outside. As much as I love Miyazaki, I love a couple of his films better than Spirited Away. Um, so I'm going to go Royal Tenenbaums. Hmm. I'm going to stick with it. I think Spirited Away is my favorite Miyazaki. Okay. And the Royal Tenenbaums is my favorite Wes Anderson. So this is really difficult. But if Royal Tenenbaums is taking down Almost Famous, then I'm sticking with it. Yeah. Here you're kind of committed 16. at this point. I am really curious to hear what you're going to do with this one, Josh. What do we got? The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind against Sofia Coppola. And lost in translation. Um, it's Eternal Sunshine. That, okay, it's actually pretty easy. And the more I'm, the more comments I'm seeing about Eternal Sunshine. This is one of those, as I said before, Pantheon films we've never really discussed on the show since I've been on the show because it's always been in the Pantheon. Haven't taken another look at it since it first came out. I have a feeling if I did, my esteem for it would grow even more. So I don't want to make that mistake. I'm convinced by the comments I've heard on how great it is beyond my memory. Eternal Sunshine. Yeah, I actually liked Lost in Translation more when we discussed it recently on the show than when I saw it originally. But that is the same experience I had rewatching Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Now, this was a while ago when we did our top 20 films of the decade back in 09 as we were transitioning into 2010. But it was in my top five and for good reason. So a fairly easy one for me, Eternal Sunshine. I hope we'll move on. What about Christopher Nolan's? Best superhero movie ever, mm-hmm. so many claim. The Dark Knight, yeah, up against Pixar's Wall-E. Oh, um, Dark Knight, man. It, the Pixar betrayal continues. I know I, that that theme song that I, that I have. I think mm-hmm. we're gonna have to change those lyrics because <laughs> it no longer applies. I'm yeah. voting. I'm going Dark Knight. I can't believe it. I think. Well, you know, there's. I still think it's a good film, but there is a bit of a drop off. I'm gonna revisit Wally. As as I mentioned, I'm I'm doing it for Ebert well, Interruptus. You're not because it's probably in, gonna get thrown in the incinerator. <laughs> no, no, we we need it for Interruptus in April. It's At gonna be on the trash heap, and off. a Wally is gonna come along and pick it up and clean it. Hold off till then, because when I look at it again, I might find my opinion will change on this. But my memory and of the other times I've seen it, there's a little bit of a drop off. From that magical opening sequence, right? Yes. Um, 
Dark Knight is just thoroughly consistent. Unlike others of us in this room and who vote in Film Spotting Madness, I don't have genre bias. So Dark Knight it is. That's not fair, especially because I'm voting for the Dark Knight. Nice. So take that. I take it back. (laughs) Next matchup is There Will Be Blood, Paul Thomas Anderson's overall number two seed in Mm -hmm. the tournament up against what I might say is still my favorite Christopher Nolan film. No, it's not The Dark Knight. It's Memento. Okay, easy for me to go. There will be blood. It's still easy for me as well. I'm going with There Will Be Blood. What about Mm -hmm. Zodiac? I know not one of your more beloved films. I like it. This is going to be an easy one for you. Okay. And a really tough one for me. Koran's Children of Men. Yeah. So where are you going to go? I'm going Children of Men. What are you thinking? I'm going Zodiac. I am going Zodiac, even though I think Children of Men is a legit contender to win this whole thing. And I don't mean that I think it might actually win. I don't think it's going to take it's worthy first place but i think it's worthy yeah, for of sure. winning this entire bracket is zodiac your favorite fincher i think i probably still like seven more seven yeah love seven love seven okay so that might be in the first slot but zodiac would i think be right behind this is the one we have two more here josh and this is the one that makes me rethink whether or not i have any business being part of film spotting madness okay and forming these film spotting madness brackets a matchup josh that for me absolutely should be decided at minimum in the elite eight or maybe even the final four it should not be playing out too soon for you here in the sweet 16 two of my top five favorite films in this entire tournament mulholland drive from Mm -hmm. david lynch against richard linklater's before sunset yeah that's and i think film spotting listeners are going to wrestle with themselves for the most part the same way i am And the problem, you know, it's the trilogy aspect of before that always throws a wrinkle into any of these votes. Yeah. Because now remind me, I know we talked about this, but before sunrise, is that (laughs) still in existence? I tried to claim that it still existed and so everything was good. But listeners did remind me that it did not win the best of the 90s tournament. So technically it's been destroyed. So it's been destroyed. So So I don't know what that experience my daughter and I had earlier this year when we watched it it because it couldn't have happened. That hasn't been wiped from your mind, despite what what the one voter mentioned. That's that's not, we're not getting that insane. Before Midnight is not, I'm fairly certain, going to make it very far in the 2010s. No, it will almost certainly be in the top 64. It'll be part of the tournament. Yeah, yeah, but I don't think it'll go very far. So we're really, you're, you're really talking about voting the trilogy out I know. at this point. I know. What are you going to do? <laughs> I I don't know. No, you have to you have to say right now. If, if, if I it have helps to say if it right helps now? at all and I I'm going to keep saying this as long as Mulholland continues in the tournament, I need to revisit it. I know I'm underrating it. But I'm still going yes. sunset in this matchup. It's my favorite Lynch. It's my favorite Lynch, and I want Lynch to be part of this tournament. And I'm really sorry, Richard Linklater. I can't believe I'm doing it. Everyone who writes in, they tweet at us, they talk about the emotional connection and response we have to Before Sunset. It doesn't change the way I feel about the masterpiece that is Mulholland Drive. It just doesn't. Now, I also think Before Sunset's a masterpiece. I think, But Mulholland Drive edges it out here. No, I think that's been a helpful piece of criteria to use, which I did with Pan's Labyrinth. If it's a major director's... Your favorite film of a major director, that's going to carry a lot of weight. One of the main influences on me getting into cinema, David Lynch. Before Richard Linklater, there was David Lynch. So I respect your reasoning. Okay. 
I appreciate that, Josh, even if that one just completely tore me up inside. To help us set up the final Sweet 16 matchup, we got this voicemail from listener Henrik Hansen. This is Henrik Hansen calling from Yalding in Kent, UK. I love the choices we have. I love them in the same way that I'm sure the people in the Saw movies loved having to make those choices as well. My favorite is Inglorious Bastards versus Fellowship of the Ring because they're both men on a mission sagas. They're both going into the heart of evil and confronting it. And the major difference is that one of them is a total fantasy wish fulfillment and the other one is the Fellowship of the Rings, which is, it gets my vote because fellowship is more grounded in reality. Anyway, I'm going to have fun with this. And thank you very much for setting it up. So Henrik's going to have fun with it. We heard his vote. It's the Fellowship of the Ring. I'm pretty sure you're going that way too, Josh. Yeah, I'm with him. Yep. Well, I picked the Fellowship of the Ring, as you know, Mm -hmm. much to your surprise and many listeners' surprise in round two. But I'm going back to Tarantino. It ends here. Yeah, for Inglorious Bastards, one of my favorite films of the past 10 years. Absolutely. Hope it moves on. I don't think that's going to be the case, though. I don't. I think the Fellowship of the Ring could really do well in this tournament. Obviously, it already has, yeah, making it which to the Sweet 16. has surprised me. So there's a lot of momentum there. I don't know. I, I think it's still going to take a lot for Fellowship to beat Bastards. Okay, let us know which ones you agonized over the most and vote in those agonizing polls now. Film Spotting Madness is open at filmspotting.net slash madness. Filmspotting.net slash madness. Vote now. Invite your friends. Even if they don't listen to the show, why not? It'll make it all more fun. Before we move on, Josh, let's hear one more voicemail. This from Film Spotting Madness founding father, Mike Merrigan. Hello, Adam, Josh, and Sam. This is Film Spotting Madness founding father, Mike Merrigan, calling from Dover, New Hampshire, for a quick recap of the Film Spotting Madness tournament. Round one clearly went to animation. Pixar did well with Finding Nemo. Wally, The Incredibles, all going through. Only Ratatouille lost by a narrow 51 to 49%, uh, which I can only assume was both a shot at Michael Phillips and Josh Larson by Film Spotting Nation. Well done there. Uh, add in Spirited Away and the fantastic Mr. Fox, and indeed, uh, round one was animation's time to shine. Uh, round two only saw Spirited Away uh, and Wally advancing. In fact, Finding Nemo got destroyed by Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which tells me that Eternal Sunshine could be the dark horse in this tournament. If anything has a chance to upset one of our expected Final Four, it could be Eternal Sunshine. The Sweet 16 is where the tournament gets torturous. Children of Men versus Zodiac could fairly be considered a best of the 2000s championship matchup, and yet one of those films will be leaving us in the round. Uh, I think that's probably the matchup to watch in the Sweet 16, and the winner will likely get to face There Will Be Blood in the Elite Eight and might be the only thing stopping that film from making its likely run to the championship. Speaking of championship, guys, where are we with the bracket challenge? Has Josh Larson lost already? Um, Good luck to everybody in the Sweet 16. Have fun with the tournament. Try not to go crazy. We'll see you in the next round. Thank you so much, Mike. Where are we indeed with the Film Spotting Madness Bracket Contest that does pit me, you, Sam, and Mike against each other? 
We try to predict how we think the tournament is going to play out. And whoever finishes last, there's nothing but bragging rights for first place here. All you got to do is not finish in last place, which is something you've done every single year. This is true. And I've been kept awake at night wondering wondering where I am in this contest, Adam. Let me know. Tell me. (laughs) The loser has to watch the latest Adam Sandler movie on Netflix. It always just seems to work out that way. He's releasing a movie just in time for the Film Spotting Madness loser. The standings after round one, Sam Van Hallgren is in first place with 61 points. He got 13 of the Sweet 16 correct. I'm in second place, also 13, the same 13 as Sam. I'm just behind him, 60 and a half points. Mike Merrigan, just behind me. You see where this is going. Mike Merrigan, just behind me, with 60 points. He also got 13 out of 16 right in round two. And that leaves you, Josh. After a good showing in round one, 29 out of 32, correct? Yeah, yeah. You only got nine of the Sweet 16, correct? Holy cow. Yeah, almost half. That's We're wrong. It's almost like I'm not putting a lot of thought into this. (laughs) It's almost like that. (laughs) So you only end up with 53 points, trailing Mike by seven. Here's the thing, though. I'm not out. No, you are not out. I'm giving you a lot of grief, but maybe it's just to cover the fact that I don't want to reckon with how this is probably going to play out. Maybe this was a long con of mine. I think I'm going to lose. I really do. (laughs) The fact is, this thing is going to be decided in the finals. These results really don't matter at this point. The stakes just aren't high enough with the way we're awarding points. We all have the same final four. So kind of boring, but we thought for sure that the top four seeds would eventually play out as the final four in Film Spotting Madness. But we do have things playing out differently in the championship match. So the way this is playing out, I I will just say that I have a certain very popular but maybe long shot choice of those top four to win this all, that based on how it's doing so far, it's it's doing okay. It's obviously mm-hmm. advanced to the Sweet 16, but it's not dominating the competition. It's certainly not dominating the way the other films are, the ones uh-huh. that you chose, that Sam chose, that Mike chose. I went more populist thinking that that would work to give me an advantage, and instead, it's going to give me the disadvantage of watching an Adam Sandler movie on Netflix. That's what I think is going to happen. Well, Adam, I, I can tell you this... Um... I've laughed, I think, probably about eight times over the course of the three Adam Sandler movies. Okay. So, so you've got that to look forward to. I do. You've got eight laughs. No, you've got, well, yeah, you've got, got two laughs. three laughs. 2.3 laughs, 2. laughs coming your way. <laughs> I can't wait. A listener who will not be watching the Adam Sandler movie along with me or whoever it ends up being is Randy Grimshaw in Rhinebeck, New York. He was our listener leader after round one. We had about 20 film spotting newsletter subscribers who got their bracket in in time and they're all competing i think for maybe a film spotting t-shirt or sam will make up something and randy is just destroying everybody he got 31 of the 32 first round picks right and he got all 16 correct in round two nicely done so he has 63 points which is more than the four of us despite the fact that we got points for the play-in round wow we all came in with an extra five to six points that's a wow yeah That is, that is a wow, Josh. Well done. We may have to actually turn over all of the Film Spotting Madness planning to Randy next year. Like I said, he might have earned that because Sam and I have not. We have not represented ourselves with distinction and integrity. There's no way Mulholland and Before Sunset should be facing each other right now. And I call on one of us to resign. (laughs) 
Can't wait for that meeting. <laughs> Voting for Film Spotting Madness is open at filmspotting.net slash madness. Again, polls go live every Friday at midnight and close the following Monday at noon. No Chinese bookies involved in Film Spotting Madness. Our review of The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, the third film in our John Cassavetes marathon, is next. Stay with us. I do my head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? Good head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? What's your truth is my falsehood. What's my falsehood is your truth and vice versa. Well, look, look at me, right? I'm only happy when I'm angry, when I'm sad, when I can play the fool, when I can be what people want me to be rather than be myself. You understand? Yeah. And that takes work. Gotta work overtime for that. <laughs> this is film spotting. That's Ben Gazzara in John Cassavetti's The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. It's the third film in our John Cassavetti's marathon. And unlike the previous films in our marathon, 1968's Faces and 1974's A Woman Under the Influence, Bookie was not a critical or a commercial success. In fact, as we'll discuss, it was actually released twice, first in 1976 and then in a significantly shorter cut in 1978. And here to provide some context for our discussion to help set things up, we do bring back on the show via voicemail, the professor, Nathaniel Myers in South Bend, Indiana, who, and this is why we love Nathaniel, besides his great taste and how eloquent and smart he is and what a great job he does really doing the heavy lifting for us with these marathons by providing all of these setups. This is what he actually did, Josh. He sent us two voicemails. He sent us one that was about a minute longer than the other one. Yeah. And he let us choose which one we thought was best Full to set up this conversation. Full so, Nathaniel. Nathaniel, very, very clever. Both, both good. Unlike the two John Cassavetes films, there wasn't necessarily a clear winner between the two voicemails, but we did, in this case, end up going with the shorter one, here's Nathaniel. Hello, Film Spotting. In the lead-up to this week's marathon movie, John Cassavetti's The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, there was some uncertainty regarding which version to go with, either the original 76 cut, which runs a lengthy 2 hours and 15 minutes, or the 78 re-edit, nearly 30 minutes shorter. What we get in those extra minutes of the 76 version is a lot more time with the characters that inhabit the world of the film's protagonist, Cosmo Vitelli, played by the frequent Cassavetes collaborator Ben Gazzara. So, by watching the 78 version, we lose time with Cosmo, for instance, as he talks with his driver over an afternoon drink. We lose time with Seymour Cassell's gangster, Mort, in a scene where he visits Cosmo's nightclub, the Crazy Horse West. And we lose significant time with the dancers at that nightclub, and with the sui generis Mr. Sophistication. 
Now, one might argue that spending more time with these characters is what makes this a Cassavetes film, and to lose them would be to lose, in a sense, Cassavetes. Certainly, based off of the films we've watched so far in this marathon, he seems less interested in tightly constructed narratives and more interested in characters in conflict. That is, conflict in these films arise out of characters who insist on being seen and recognized. Characters like the ostensible Chinese bookie of the film's title, who the camera lingers on just long enough to remind both Cosmo and the audience that he is himself a human being with his own life. But The Killing of a Chinese Bookie is also unique among the films we've watched so far. It is arguably, first and foremost, a genre film, a gangster film, in which an affable nightclub owner racks up gambling debts and is tasked with murder to absolve those debts before he's double-crossed and must survive a shootout in a dingy warehouse. And as a genre flick, perhaps what this film needs is not a world where every minor character has their moment, but a taut narrative with shorter takes and without all the excess. Heck, supposedly even Cassavetes preferred the shorter 78 version. So guys, I'm not entirely sure which version you both ended up watching, though I think it was the longer 76 cut. And if that's the case, do you agree with the film's director that the 78 version is perhaps preferable? Or would you miss that extra time, time spent with Cosmo, Mort, Mr. Sophistication, and his De Lovelies? And aren't you relieved to know that, at the very least, both versions of the film include the incredible moment when, in the middle of his murderous errand, Cosmo pops into a phone booth just to make sure everything's running smoothly at his club? I mean, talk about a Cassavetes moment, guys. Thank you, Nathaniel. See, I, I knew the professor would have everything covered, so that's why I only watched one version. I just watched the 76. Okay. It sounds like – did you do both? Did you do 76 and 78? We'll get to it. Oh, man. We'll get to it. I, I You couldn't have. There's no <laughs> we'll way. We'll get to it. You, you watch them all in little sections and have no idea I mean, which maybe. was which. Over about point. seven nights. Uh, all right. So I think, you know – my take on what Nathaniel's offering here is that my experience of the 76 version is the genre elements were uh, least appealing to me. And as I've already made clear, not because they were genre elements. I just think they were um, not as well-crafted as some of the other stuff that was in the film. And exactly what Nathaniel's saying, not really Cassavetes. I mean, he he could obviously do something like that. I'm not saying he's not, not allowed to try to make that sort of film, but there's a particular gap when you're trying to do both things in one project. So maybe if he just made a straight-up gangster film, um, could have been great. Here, at least in the 76 version, you're getting, I don't know, 80% of a really compelling character study, Cassavetti's character study, um, time capsule. That's one of the things I love most about it I want to get into is a period of of the late 70s, mid-70s really. Um, but then you're also getting these this little, you know, flourish of genre, this little detour into genre that, yes, informs the plot and I think weaves into it in a way that's effective and helps us to learn something new and different about Cosmo. Uh, but really, you know, I could have just stayed at the club. Hmm. I think I would have been happier. So, yeah, is is that the right instinct, having watched – I don't know what you watched now. What well, did you do? I'll tell you. So I was swayed at the last minute. I was initially all on board with the 78, and you can make the joke that it's because it's 27 minutes shorter or 28 minutes shorter. And, of course, that's that's part of it. We'd love it if all of these marathon movies were about 110 minutes. Thank you very much, 
Christian Petzold for transit this week at an hour 40. That worked well. But it really was because I was seeing all these arguments that, no, this was really Cassavetti's preferred version, and it's the better vision. But I was with you. I was going 76. Let's go back to the first one. That's always been our model. At the last minute, a listener swayed me. Matt wrote in. That's all I've got. His first name, Matt. He wrote in this weekend and said, guys, The 1978 cut is the only cut you need to see of this film. I thought you had Cassavetti's scholars advising you here. The 1976 cut was rushed in order to meet a desired theatrical release date. It is messy and poorly paced. The 78 cut is much clearer in its purpose and thematic continuity. I'm disappointed that Josh tainted his perception of the film by viewing the 76 cut first, but maybe it's not too late for Adam. Chinese Bookie is probably my favorite Cassavetti's film overall, but it's hard to choose since he is my favorite director of all time. He closes by saying, I hope you close out the marathon with love streams since it is somewhat of a final statement from the director and seems to reiterate themes from his earlier films. I would love to see love streams. It's not going to close out our marathon. We're going to go with opening night instead. But with those words ringing in my head, when I sat down this past Sunday to finally watch the killing of a Chinese bookie, I said, okay, I'm going to listen to Matt. I'm going to at least start with the 1978 version. And yes, like Nathaniel says, and as you said, Josh, we lose time with them in the 78, what Nathaniel suggests might mean losing Cassavetes, what a listener Graham in my letterbox comments called the mundane humanity that makes Cassavetes film special. I agree that that's lost in the 78. I went to the 76, watched almost all of it again in real time, but made sure to definitely watch all the scenes that were not there in the 78, that additional 27 minutes. And I completely reject Matt's suggestion that the <laughs> 78 is clearer in its purpose and its thematic continuity. It's not clearer in anything. So there's a sizable chunk of the 27 minute difference that comes early on in the 78 version. The fact that they shorten up the intro with the mob guy he's paying off at the beginning, they really truncate that in the 78 version. But in the 76, there's this conversation backstage with the performers that mirrors the one at the end of the film. And that mirroring, I think, is so crucial to so much of this film. And then the other key part that eats up most of that time, because that's really what it is. It's not as if there's a bunch of minor changes. There's segments that they cut out for the 78. Mort's visit to the club. Seymour Cassell, representing this mob group that kind of gets its claws into Cosmo. We don't get that at all in the 78 version. So it basically goes from a night at the club to then the next morning, he's all gussied up in his tuxedo. Bed Gazzara is. He's loading up the women. And they're heading off in a limousine with champagne and flowers. And you have no idea where. So without Mort's visit, we don't really know why he's going out with those three women from his club, why they're all dressed up, where they're going or why. He hasn't been invited. And all the pomp we learn, if you watch the 76 version, is because he's playing dress up. It's another element of performance. He's trying to impress. He's playing the role of the big shot he wants to be and that he thinks they want him to be as well. He took care of Mort at the club with the bottles of champagne. Now Mort's going to take care of him. And they're just a couple of big shot club owners. And this is sort of him living out his version of the American dream. But thematically, without Mort's invite, all the fake schmoozing that Mort does with Cosmo, you lose the extent to which... This whole thing has been a grand setup yeah, the entire time. Entrapment, right. The system immediately finds a way to get him back working for their benefit. After he's paid off his money at the beginning and he thinks he's a free man, and finally he's going to start making money at the club for himself, they've found a way 
to have him be in debt to them again. And I think it's important for us to realize, and we only really realize it in the 76, that Cosmo isn't just a sleazeball, which he is kind of a sleazeball, but he's also, at least we know this if we watch the 76 version, he's a schmuck. He's another dreamer who's being taken advantage of by people with more power and money and far less honesty and integrity than he actually has. And without that Mort sequence, I just don't feel like we at all get the full picture of Cosmo as this self-made man, an artist in his own way. We'll talk about that more. (laughs) Who is, as we said, being taken advantage of. And there's just these little moments that don't make any sense when you watch them in the 78 where he's in that limousine and he's saying, I got a golden life, got the world by the balls. And he says, that's right. I'm great. In the 78, that's just kind of dumb bluster. He's just this arrogant guy who's going to get some comeuppance. In the 76 version, it's tragic. Yeah, it's it's not interesting that he's a bit of a sleazeball. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it is interesting that he's a schmuck. But what you're talking about is the really interesting part about this movie is that he is an artist. Uh, yes. Definitely he's an artist in his own mind. But he's these bizarre stage shows that are put on with the dancers but are led by this – persona known as Mr. Sophistication, played by Mead Roberts. It's He's sort of like – the whole thing reminds me of like an R-rated Andy Kaufman routine because you can't make any sense of the narrative. They try to string a narrative mm-hmm. into these stage shows and the women come out playing different characters. Um, and then you – all. what I love the detail in the background is you always have someone in the audience who's like, yeah, just, just take give it me off. the girls, yeah. right? Yeah. But Cosmo – has put his heart and soul into this. Mm-hmm. He's written these. He's directed these. He's often in backstage um, on the microphone introducing them. And Nathaniel is exactly right when he talks about that perfect Cassavetes moment. This is when Cosmo is out on the job to kill yes. the Chinese boogie yes. and stops, goes to a payphone, <laughs> calls the bartender. But here's the – and this goes back to the schmuck thing. Yeah. He calls and talks to the bartender and wants to know how the show is going. And he says, well, are they doing this show? And the bartender – can't yeah. answer. He says you've been working here this long and you don't know. He doesn't even know what show they're doing because – and this is where the movie gets sad as well. All of this junk only matters to Cosmo. Mm-hmm. He's the only one who's putting his heart and soul in it. Maybe Mr. Sophistication. I think I think he's getting maybe. something out and of it. He's pretty worn down. I think – yeah. He's maybe at the end of his career. But you know, when he was young, um, he probably thought he was doing something really artistic as well. But yeah, that, that's the tragic element to this yes. uh, is that Cosmo is at the – and you're right. The performance by Gazzara is so great because he's this guy who exudes cool and calm. Mm-hmm prioritizes style. He says in that early scene yes. with the first guy he pays off, yeah. you've got no style. Yeah. And you feel like that's what matters most to him. It's not that this guy has you know, extorted him for money or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's that he's doing it crudely. He doesn't yes. have style. So Cosmo has this sense of style. He's vulgar, he's not an artist. also yeah. stinking of panic. Every moment he is stinking of panic. Um, that is what Mort Cassell's character and these other guys identify. They see him as a target, mm-hmm. as someone who they can lure in, get him to act like he's bigger than he is in this entertainment business, and then they've got him in their grasp. Um, and all of that is part of the genre element. So that's why I say it's necessary to the film, but when it fully gives into it, the actual assassination 
sequence. Yeah. To me, that's almost like it, it felt a little maybe because it's the time period, but like do it yourself to Palma. It was like I just kept wanting to Palma to stage that hmm. where this is kind of like a little rough and tumble. Um, the the blocking and, and is sort of what you need to know. I do like the emphasis on the victim. Yeah, I was going to say like Nathaniel is right to point yeah, out that is that is that he draws attention to that a distinction. But as an action sequence, you know, you're just wishing for for maybe a, a little bit more of that sort of genre craftsmanship. Um, it's that other stuff that's so great. It's the stage stuff. It's the speeches, the one you talked about mm-hmm. backstage early on. And then, which I'm sure we'll get to, the climactic final speech that Cosmo sure. gives. So before we talk a little bit more about the artist stuff going on here, I want to mention one of the other key differences in the 78 that makes it a lesser film. And that's before the Mort scene where he brings all those people to the club and the setup really begins – the 78 cuts out a key conversation that happens in the bar right after he's freed himself of the debt and he goes to a bar to celebrate and he ends up with some conversations with the different people and he meets a guy named Eddie and they have a bizarre conversation, right? And they trade stories about growing up in New York. Do you remember this part? He's his cab of the film? Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're talking, yeah. they're talking and it sets up the whole foundation, I think, for how we see Cosmo, but it also sets up what I think is the line of the movie. Eddie jokes that, oh, the rich people, you were one of the rich people where you were. And he says, no, we were all poor where we were. And Eddie says, yeah, but at least you had the river. And he says, yeah, the beautiful river. All you rich people live by the river. And Cosmo says, we used to swim in that river when we were kids. No matter how dirty it was, they swam in that river. So no matter how poor they were, that is one thing they had that in a way sort of gave them this hope and and this sense of elegance, maybe even, and sophistication that was outside of their daily existence. And then at the end of the film, near the end of the film, when he goes to Rachel's house, one of his performers who also... I think the movie wants us to believe is his girlfriend and he's also she's the dancer he's closest. Yeah, the main squeeze. And then she's got a mother named Betty who also is in some kind of a relationship with Cosmo. And they have this conversation where he says to her, it closes after she says, you know what? I want you out of here. You can't be in this house anymore. He says, I wish you luck in whatever you endeavor. And I got to go because there are no rivers here. Obviously, a callback to that conversation, him saying this, you know what, this isn't home. You're kicking me out, but I'm recognizing that this isn't home for me. And I'm watching that. And after watching it in the 76 and putting that together, I'm thinking, how do you cut the part that sets up that best line in the movie without it? He just sounds like a deranged person. And in fairness, he is kind of deranged and out of his mind in this moment. But the idea that his future, his home isn't here with her and Rachel I think that has way more power. And then where does he go, Josh? Where does he go? He goes to the club. That's his only home. That's the river. That's the only thing that he cares about. Yeah. And it also captures this sense of, you know, L.A. being a place of transplants. And so obviously that's the case for Cosmo. And he's built this life for himself. He's he's built this image for himself and. It still, in a way, hasn't satisfied because he's. That's why he goes to the other gambling den. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's still trying to yeah. um, to gain some sort of status within this world. Status some sort is of exactly right respect, mm-hmm. um, and it really, you know, it, it turns out to be his downfall. Yeah. There is a term I'm trying to come up with, and maybe listeners can help if you can't come up with a good title. Sam made a pretty decent suggestion, but I've noticed with our marathons, pretty consistently, there's at least one movie for me. That if I was watching the movie in a vacuum, completely out of the context of the marathon, I would probably be less forgiving of it. And at least so far through three films, 
Killing of a Chinese Bookie is that Cassavetes film. But watching it within the context of these films, watching it after Faces and A Woman Under the Influence, movies that are about, as Nathaniel so eloquently put it, people who insist on being seen and recognized. You see how this movie, even as different as it is by taking on some of these genre elements, you see how it fits in to that framework completely. These people struggling with the confines of institutions. I'll use that broadly. Marriage, suburbia, capitalism, whatever we want to think of as the American dream. That's that status. He finally has some power on his own. He's standing on his own two feet. What any man should want and he's got a business and he's working for himself and yet it's not quite enough he feels that need he feels that need to somehow keep moving up the ladder and gain that status and respect and you're right it is his downfall but at the same time the struggle is he's trying to exert his individuality just like mabel and a woman under the influence he's still trying to be his true self and that was her dilemma and that's a connection to a woman under the influence but also all these performance elements that are developed here in a little bit of a different way than they were in that film. Well, another reality for Cosmo is that history is passing him by here. Mm. And this is why this film struck me so interesting as a time capsule. So if you think about it, mid-70s, you know, you're a couple years after Deep Throat. So porn was still, you know, it had something of mainstream cachet, mm-hmm. but you're also fighting with second wave feminism that had been around for a while now. So you have these two things that are, you know, something at odds. And the result is for Cosmo, this guy running this artsy strip yeah. club that's trying to merge those two things totally. in some way. It's smut, but it's also vaudeville. Yeah, and it, it, yeah. It doesn't, Vaudeville's it doesn't a good work. word. Well, it's definitely not working by the time you're getting to the late 1970s. Mm-hmm. And this is a comment he makes in that early backstage yes. conversation. The speech he gives, he just says, you know, skirts are getting longer, noticing women outside. Mm-hmm. And it, I just love how he's saying that in this room with women where there's, you know, there's yeah. not a skirt on one of them. Yeah. So it, it, the whole world is moving past him just when he thinks he should be coming into his own as this impresario. Um it's too late. It's too late yeah. for a guy like Yeah, there's Cosmo. a real fatalism and he there. he doesn't see it. He doesn't mm-hmm. realize it at all until maybe that amazing final speech when he does go back to the stage. At this point, he's been shot from that, from the killing itself. He's been shot and wounded, so he's bleeding. And this could very well be like his last 10 minutes. You don't know. But he makes a comment there, takes the stage, gives a speech and says, they say everything is sex. You know, another observation about the era. But here at the Crazy Horse West, we give you more than that. So he wants his epitaph to be that I made something of artistic value here. Yeah. And he's Jack Corner. He's Burt Reynolds in Boogie Nights, too. Yes, very much so. And again, the detail of this scene more than any of the others, you've got the people shouting out, you know, variations of get off the stage, bring out the girls. He's making his last claim for respectability and... That's all most of the crowd wants. Yeah. No, we know he's doomed. And the tragedy is he can't completely see it when we watch that first conversation scene. And like I said, I think it's by design, of course, that he's literally even sitting in the exact same place and exact same position. And everyone else in the room seems to be almost in those same spots. This kind of repetition that it could go on forever until it won't go on until finally they'll just shutter the doors because time has passed the crazy horse West by, which makes it even more absurd that somehow that scene wasn't in the 78 version. Somehow Cassavetes even believed that the film was better 
without that conversation. I'm with you. I think it's so crucial to the success of the movie. We both kind of danced around this a little bit in talking about Cosmo as an artist, but I would love to know if Cassavetes himself ever talked about how personal his films are and where Bookie might fall on that spectrum where it would rank in terms of really revealing himself as an artist and as a man. It's a little incongruous to think of this genre movie, which is something that Cassavetes wasn't, of course, known for making as one of his most personal movies. But I can't imagine that it wasn't. I think the genre elements that you said are something you could do without, maybe not as well crafted. I don't necessarily expect the way Cosmo as a hitman performs to probably fit within that scheme. But I think that the genre elements are just subterfuge here because without it, Cassavetes would basically just be bleeding on the screen. That's my sense of watching this film. You've got this two bit club, but it's Cosmo's two bit club and it's a two bit show, but it's his two bit show. You said it. He's got total creative control. It's his only form of expression. It's the only form of expression that he's capable of and he does genuinely care about the show as we said as nathaniel said even if it means calling from a payphone when you're on your way to possibly murder someone and you're talking about what numbers they're doing and whether they're getting their parts right the dancers the dancers and again speaks to why that first scene and that closing scene are so important they inform the fact that that's his ensemble that's his troop of performers just like cassavetes himself had that's his family i think you could read the mob in this scenario as as Hollywood, right? They're the Hollywood studios. They're taking what they can get from artists like Cassavetes. They're controlling, for the most part, the means of distribution, the means of production. I even feel like, and I haven't seen a lot of Cassavetes' acting work or interviews with him, but I really feel like Gazzara is actually channeling him a little bit. His demeanor, his cadence, they both, they both somehow have this perpetual anguished grin on their faces. Think about how often we see Cosmo here silent and it kind of looks like he's smiling, but at the same time you see that panic, as you said, Josh, that's just broiling underneath. And that's the sense I get whenever I watch Cassavetes, that there's this kind of this rage or this intensity just under the surface that he's always keeping down. So for me, the irony of this kind of ostensibly being a crime movie really belies the fact that it's actually probably Cassavetes most direct statement of an artist of what he's trying to do. Yeah, probably. So far from the films we saw, I think that's completely fair. And and once again, performance for sure is absolutely at the heart of it. The Gazara performance um, itself is, I haven't seen enough Cassavetes, you know, myself to know how close it might be to his on-screen persona. But in addition to that combination of cool and panic that he manages, there's that really fascinating opening tracking shot or at least single take that is almost as if it's Cosmo in his own head. You know, the car pulls up to the restaurant, camera stays in the car, he comes out. It's it's like what Tarantino will do to characters years later, give them that sense of cool. Mm-hmm. And Gazar brings um, a threat, a menace to it. I think he actually threatens the guy that he's paying back. Um, and I think that just adds – I, I want to be clear too that like Cosmo is – He's sympathetic, but he is, as you said early, sleazy. Like the guy's yeah. a sleazeball as well. He's 
in a sense, this is his troop, but it's also his harem. That's pretty clear. Um, and he's often, you know, shoving alcohol down his dancers' throats, particularly when they're going to go to that gambling house as well, and he brings them along. So the guy is, you know, things get violent when Rachel comes in while mm-hmm. he's auditioning another dancer. Rachel played by Azizi Johari, and their confrontation gets violent. So that's all to say that Gazara is juggling a lot of stuff here, carrying this entire film on his shoulders because I see it ultimately as a character study mm-hmm. um, and yet giving us this character who's all these things, who we do sympathize with, who's a sleazy guy, yet who has these artistic impulses that are admirable, that has in, uh, you know his own set of ethics. This relates to For your sure. reading of it as, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of relating to Hollywood. Um, he's not going to compromise on no. certain things. Um, yeah, it's just uh, – it's, it's a really enthralling performance that made what ended up being the longer version that I watched not feel like a chore at all. Next week, we'll wrap up the marathon with 1978's opening night, and we will share our Cassavetes Marathon Awards. We always need title suggestions, though I have one that I'll get to here in a moment. And, you know, Nathaniel, coming through again, great suggestions. Really funny suggestions, too, for what we could call these Cassavetes Marathon Awards. We could call them The Closing Nights or works. Rosemary's Babies, <laughs> which I do love. John Cassavetes, of course, the husband to Mia Farrow and that movie, The Crazy Horses, playing off the name of Cosmo's Club, or The Mabels or The Minis or The Moskowitzes or The Myrtles or The Marias or The Morts. Seriously, the guy loved M names. And then finally, the I Don't Give a Falks. But... <laughs> Nathaniel ultimately says, maybe the DeLovelies is my only genuine suggestion. And that's the name of his troupe, the women performers there at the Crazy Horse West. So the DeLovelies, I think, is a perfect title. I can see it. Now, here's my only other suggestion. And it does require just a brief bit of explanation, unlike the DeLovelies. But I recently saw an interview with Peter Falk talking about the making of A Woman Under the Influence. And he tells this great anecdote about what it was like working with John Cassavetes and how scripted things actually were and they weren't as improvised as everyone thinks, but they were definitely spontaneous. And he's telling the story of the beginning, shooting the beginning of A Woman Under the Influence. One of the early scenes we see Peter Falk's character. He's a construction worker, works for the city or the county, and he's driving a truck and he's got all of his men and they roll up on a disaster site, a water main break or something. And We cut to inside the truck, and there's a conversation between Peter Falk and another guy. So Cassavetes did mostly shoot, it seems, in order, as opposed to by location Mm -hmm. and how most films are shot. And that sort of jives with what we've seen and would expect from Cassavetes. And Falk tells a story that they're in the truck. They're shooting their first scenes, playing this character. And Cassavetes gives him a couple notes and says, okay, we're going to get ready to shoot. And then right before he says action... He grabs this blue hat that Peter Falk has never seen and shoves it on his head. Hmm. Now, that's the hat that we see mm-hmm. Peter Falk wearing yeah. throughout like most of the film. Hat, right? Exactly. It's yeah. like a workman's hat. That's what Falk calls okay. it. So this hat, <laughs> Cassavetes just had waiting for this moment, springs it on him right as they're about to start filming the opening shots of this character. And it completely informed Falk's performance. Hmm. He says, and I can't imagine the movie without him wearing it. So for me, the blue hats also seems to kind of symbolize what Cassavetti stands for as a director. So I would throw that one into the mix as well. That would work. What I like about the DeLovelies, though, is, you know, not so much 
It's interesting. Not so much killing of a Chinese bookie, even though that's where it came from. Yeah. But when you think about um, faces and women under the influence is really putting the women front and center. Good point. Um, so, so I kind of like that element of that Which as well. we will definitely see again in opening night. One of the two Cassavetes films in this marathon that I have seen previously. I can't wait to revisit it. And hopefully you will visit it or see it again. We'd love to have you playing along with this Cassavetes marathon. More information about all those titles can be found at filmspotting.net slash marathons. That is our show. That's it. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 14 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And of course, that's where you have to vote in the Film Spotting Madness Best of the 2000s. We've made our way to the Sweet 16 matchups. Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch over at filmspotting.net slash shop. All right. If you want to connect with Adam and I on social media, Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And if you want to get that Film Spotting newsletter, subscribe at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend. We're going to play a little game here, Josh. It's our fun game we like to call Gun to the Head. Okay. You have to see one of these movies. Yes. Is it Captive State, set in a Chicago neighborhood nearly a decade after an occupation by an extraterrestrial force? John Goodman stars Vera Farmiga, James Ransone. It's directed by Rupert Wyatt, who did Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Okay. Or Five Feet Apart. Two teenagers with life-threatening illnesses meet in a hospital and fall in love. Haley Lou Richardson. No. Okay. Wonder Park. This is animated. Oh, good gracious. No, I saw the trailer for this. Oh, an amusement park where the imagination of a wildly creative girl named June comes alive. No. Did not come alive for you in the teaser. Captive State. Okay, Captive State. Yeah. You know what? Five coming, feet apart, baby. With me? Oh. Five feet apart, baby. Oh. No. It was an honorable mention for me when we did our questions of the movie going year. I'm thinking about how much I love Haley Lou Richardson, and I think she can make me appreciate what probably will shape up to be rather treacly YA material. Let me know how it is. Okay. Okay. Out in limited release here in Chicago. This is one I can't wait to catch up with. It's opening here at Facets. It's called Combat Obscura. It's the doc debut of a former combat cameraman for the Marines. He built it from the footage he captured while serving in Afghanistan. It's dubbed the very documentary the Corps doesn't want you to see. Also out in limited release is Gloria Bell, about a free-spirited woman in her 50s who seeks out love at L.A. dance clubs. Julianne Moore getting her groove on in L.A. dance clubs, directed by Sebastian Lelio, who did A Fantastic Woman. I'm curious about both of those films and Transit, also opening here in Chicago, recommended by us earlier in the show. Next week, we will talk about one of the most highly anticipated films of 2019, Jordan Peele's Us. We will announce the Elite Eight of Film Spotting Madness and close out our John Cassavetes Marathon. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. We'd also like to thank the Communication Arts Department at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois, where we recorded this episode. You can learn more at trnty.edu. Our music this week is from Lizzo. It comes from the forthcoming album, Cause I Love You. More information is at lizzomusic.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.